Tonight, the Dharma talk is going to be a slightly different format. Usually I give a talk for a while and then I have a quote sheet at the end. Tonight I have a longer quote sheet and I'm going to start by distributing the quote sheet and I'm going to talk through the quotes on the quote sheet. Um, Hold on a second. Sometimes... There we go. So folks on folks on Zoom, the link to the quote sheet is in the chat. And so these quotes are from a they're all from a book, Dancing in the Flames, The Dark Goddess and the Transformation of Consciousness, by two Jungian psychologists, Marion Woodman and Eleanor Dixon. Marion Woodman passed away a few years ago. I wasn't really able to find much information about Eleanor Dixon, but I believe she's still alive. So these are all quotes about psychology and personal growth from a Jungian perspective. So the first quote, she, this would be the dark goddess, she faces us with our greatest fear And by showing us the treasure hidden away within it, she takes us to the place where love is born. Love is the true antithesis of fear. It expands where fear constricts. It embraces where fear repels. And there's really a profound truth in this one. Love is the antithesis of fear. Love is the opposite of fear. Um, I don't think people realize that or realize how powerful that is. That when they're taking steps guided by fear... They're moving away from love. You have a life that is filled with fear. You have a life that is defended or resisting a lot of love. And we invite more love into our life by overcoming our fears. You know, it's, you know, in conventional society, someone might ask, why on earth would I ever want to face my deepest fears? Well, if you, I'll use the metaphor of real estate, you know, our deepest fears take up a tremendous amount of real estate in our psyche. When we, when we face and clear that, all that real estate becomes available for love. You know? So it's, I think, a really important and underappreciated idea there. The next quote, the individual psyche is the microcosm of the cultural macrocosm. And this will, this will play out in other quotes also, but the idea that the divisions that we see in society play out in our psyche. And insofar as we can heal the divisions in our psyche, we have something to offer to the larger society. The next quote, self-knowledge comes through relationship with and a commitment to something or someone beyond oneself, beyond the gratification of one's personal needs. And so this is just, I, I find, a, an, an elegant little uh, statement of the difference between maturity and immaturity. As long as I'm, I'm gratifying my own needs, I, I haven't really grown up, you know. And self-knowledge and maturity comes when I'm able to commit to something larger than myself. 
The next quote. The truth is most of us are where we are partly through overwhelming circumstances that have landed us here and partly because this is where we want to be. 75% one way, 65% the other way. If we see the opposites in ourselves, we are less likely to judge and blame others. If we have identified too closely with the light, have too idealized an image of ourselves, then our shadow will surely come up and hit us on the backside. The same is true we have identified with our negative side. We could be struck from behind by our goodness. Either position is a denial of our wholeness. So there's a lot here. Um, it really is the case more than we like to admit that we create the situations in our lives, you know. And especially if there's a, a situation where something is bedeviling us, something is annoying us, um, chances are very good that unconsciously I am creating that, either by unconsciously provoking it or unconsciously seeking something from it, seeking something from it that I know I'm not going to get, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and the more we can withdraw the projections and bring that energy into us, the more we can heal ourselves. The next quote, fantasy is one of the most dangerous addictions in our society. What is missing is embodiment. That one is just kind of self-evident. The next one, stark honesty, however painful, is needed on this journey toward the self. The unconscious will not tolerate anything less. One must be willing to face many cruel truths, those we keep hidden from the light of day and those we keep hidden from ourselves. Not only do we have to die of a false image of ourselves, but we have to change our outer life accordingly. Change means change. We, ha we may have all the insights, but if we do not incarnate them, they are in vain. We may have to die to our job, to a particular relationship, to our faith. Death is agonizing, lonely, risky. We have to be willing to suffer the loss of those things that stand in our way to freedom. So a very uncompromising quote here. Um, there really is a part of us that just knows the truth deeply and, and doesn't have any patience for our BS. You know, and the more we can be in touch with that, it's hard to be in touch with that, that edge of us that really knows the truth deeply. Um, it's hard, but it's powerful. Um, the thing that's hard is that it will, it will point out all the lies in our life. It will point out all the ways that I'm holding on to illusion, you know. The next quote. We often learn wisdom by way of disillusionment with ourselves as with others. That's a wonderful quote, and it kind of suggests a wonderful discipline. Next time you're feeling very disillusioned, it's discipline to ask, what is the wisdom here? What is the wisdom in this disillusionment? The next one, when the power comes from within, we claim it as our own. Then we no longer have to affirm ourselves by dominating others. The irony is that we're actually afraid of our own power. This is something that we've talked about before and on other weeks in the Sangha, how we're afraid to step into power. 
The next quote, if we as a collective continue to be driven by projections and splits between disembodied spirit and unconscious matter, we can never be present to each other beyond the demands of an ego that is trapped in a one-sided need for order and control. When conscious matter becomes a vessel that can receive spirit, this joining together can bring us to a new level of consciousness. Ego can stand in a creative relation to the self. To stand in relation to the self is to be totally present to oneself. When we are present to set ourselves, we can be present to others in a totally new way. In the world of the self, we meet all those of whom we are part, whose hearts we have touched. Here there is no aloneness, only presence. There is no egoism involved here, no, win, no need to win or lose, no need to control. The projections have been withdrawn and reclaimed as parts of ourselves. Only when this happens is genuine relationship possible. So about this quote and, and a few of the other quotes, I'd say this is a quote where, where Marion Winman is really giving kind of a bird's eye view of, you know, the extremes of, on the one hand, a very unconscious life where I'm not in my body and I'm, pro- and I'm projecting all kinds of things outward. And then at the other extreme, this kind of Buddha-like awareness and love, you know. And it, she, she points out these opposites for clarity. Um, but it, it's very important to realize that, of course, it's not just, life is not just this either or, one extreme or the other. Um, growth is a process and we'll, we'll start out very, maybe we start out very disconnected and disembodied and unconscious. And then we spiral through stages of, I'm a little more present to myself, then I can be a little more present to others. Then, then there's another, then there's a dropping into deeper embodiment. We spiral into it slowly. And at any point we're able to be as present as we can be. Um, also, I think a tricky thing is it, I think it would be, it plays into one of the illusions of, of avoidant attachment to read this as, well, I'm not really ready to connect until I'm, until I'm Buddha-like perfect, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and the truth is wherever we are, with however connected to myself I am, however present to myself I am, connection is helpful. If I go out and I seek authentic connection through that love, through that belonging, I'm going to have the energy to heal myself further. So we we heal through authentic connection. The next quote, the next quote uses the Jungian idea of a persona. A persona is a mask a particular role. Often when we get to the point where we can no longer bear the constraints of a persona to which we are enslaved, we are forced to surrender. The unconscious can then begin to reveal to us what is missing because we are ready to look for it. And I'll say that quote kind of points out a very conventional dynamic that we we stay in a particular path or a particular role until the pain drives us to desperation. And, you know, ah, I'm miserable. Something has to change. And then once we're, once we're at desperation, then, we're, then ego is broken open in a way and we can learn, you know. But it really suggests, you know, can we get to the place of learning, learning 
without having to go to the place of desperation, you know? Can we actually apprentice ourselves to to what the unconscious has to teach us and, and draw on it in a more proactive way rather than waiting for a crisis before we're ready to learn, you know? The next quote, it is important to remember that dreams give us images that point in the direction of wholeness. Conscious moves, the, the unconscious moves ahead of consciousness. Conscious action may come somewhat later. So first of all, everything in us has this tendency toward wholeness. We'll see this again in some later quotes. But I also like this idea, consciousness, the unconscious moves ahead of consciousness. Often in personal growth, our unconscious is ahead of of where our consciousness is. Uh, the, the poet David White once says that, you know, there's a silent part of us that is always transgressing boundaries. It's always stepping across boundaries or thresholds into, into new areas of being. And it has to do it silently because if ego had any idea it was crossing those boundaries, it would do everything it could to stop them, you know. But in personal growth, often it's the unconscious that changes first. And then the ego is kind of catching up afterwards, like, you know, belatedly catching up to where I already am kind of thing. The next quote, suddenly feeling vulnerable without all the patterns of defenses cause her panic. Walls not only keep others out, but keep us in. Yet we can afford to tear down those walls only if we are willing to surrender to a sense of connectedness deep within ourselves. There is a way in which we create our own reality. Our own inner dynamics are played out in the people and situations that constellate around us. When we come to a place of openness and connectedness within ourselves, reality outside becomes more open and connected. Trust begins to emerge. Trust in ourselves and trust in the universe. This is not naivete, but an undefended undefensive posture toward life, it is surrendering to the journey that is uniquely ours. And so again, another kind of bird's eye view of, on the one hand, being completely walled off in this pattern of defense, and on the other hand, being, you know, in this place of seeing openness and connection everywhere, you know, and again, growth is a process, we spiral through, you know, at any point, um, you know, I tear down some walls and I'm open a little more. Maybe maybe I'm even in a little bit of panic because I'm a little more vulnerable than I've ever been. Then from there, I'm experiencing more openness and connection. Then I relax into that. I'm more, more undefended. Then I can tear down some more walls and we keep on spiraling through that. The next quote. Beyond the controlling mask, the soul yearns to speak its agony. The soul knows how to compute its own destiny and have given the chance how to achieve it. So there's a few things there. First of all, you know, to what extent are, do we wear a mask? And to what extent is there authenticity behind that mask that is just aching to get out? You know, and also this idea the soul knows the soul knows how to complete its destiny and knows how to achieve it. You know, something in us really knows the direction in which we need to walk. And the more we can be honest with that part of ourselves, the more 
the more rapidly we can progress in our growth. The next quote, the most stressed adults were once creative children whose intensity and imagination collided continually with the rational, rigid word world of their parents and teachers. Adults who have lost their creativity and are smoldering with the unexpressed emotions are jealous and frightened of the individual child's creative imagination. They demand that the child be good, which means swallow your anger, initiative, and creativity and reflect me. Is this a possible route of psychosomatic illness? When the soul decides to live, it releases the creative child who loves to play, for whom every moment is now, the artist whose perception bridges the timeless world and time through imagery. It is quite true that when many people first begin to relate to their bodies, the flood of lost memories and the accompanying toxins released may be overwhelming and produce severe illness. Soul and body may need time to rest to become acquainted with each other. Surrender to the illness may be part of your journey. If body work, or what, what is better called soul-making, is carried out with an accomplished therapist, the dam is gently and patiently removed so that the resulting flood does not drown ego. So a few things there. First of all, the idea that you know a lot of very stressed adults were creative, sensitive children who were shut down. And sometimes... Sometimes the child, the creative, sensitive child who is harshly shut down, then becomes an adult who harshly shuts down another generation of children, you know. And so what does it mean to release that creativity? And then also the idea, and I don't think this, this sometimes happens, most often when people just are at the very beginning of opening up spiritual growth, Sometimes it does release a lot of toxins and they, they do get sick at the beginning of, uh, you know, especially if they, they've been neglecting personal growth for a while and then suddenly some kind of, you know, tragedy or shock throws them onto the path of, of spiritual growth. The next quote, this is a deeper one. When a person works through to the deeper levels of pain in the soul, the eternal part of ourselves which dwells in the body, the anguish surrounding the birth may become manifest. The dreams say, don't go in there, warning the analyst and analyzam that the trauma is too intense for ego to endure. Sometimes the dreams suggest that the mother tried to abort the child, that the child was not wanted, that a child of the opposite sex was desired, or that the father rejected the child. Whatever happened, the child was not welcome into the world and the bonding between mother and child did not occur. However hard the child tries to be loved, it knows it will always fail simply by being who it is. If the mother's emotions are not anchored in her own body, the child has no way of finding that anchoring, no way of relating to the body's loneliness, nor can the mother mirror the child since she sees her own guilt and frustration every time she seriously tries to relate. Most children go on living in spite of the grief that may have surrounded their birth, but they do so at a price. Disconnected at their deepest instinctual level, they hang on to life by becoming super-adjusted to reality. They develop a charming persona, perfect their performances, and deny who they really are. The dream of a non-existent paradise in the past and an equally non-existent future. Their bodies are so armored against invasion 
that genuine feelings are not accessible. People with something to hold on to can relax. People with nothing have to hold on very tight. So there's a lot there. And it's really about some of the deepest trauma concerns the trauma of our birth. And we're at the very beginning where we welcome into the world, where we welcomed into our bodies. Um, and any wounding there, she doesn't use the word, but it's really toxic shame that is held in the first chakra, the wounds around one's birth. And that leads to perfectionism and the, you know, the superhero mask and all this, this kind of thing. Um, and so this is the deepest level of healing, the deep and um, all I could say is it takes a long time, a long time of cycling through, cycling down deeper and deeper. Um, but it, it, how can I say, it is by far the most, um, the, the richest kind of healing to do, to heal into the body and heal into life at that level. The next quote, the task of releasing a terrorized body is immense and impossible if not combined with dream work and imagery, but because these give meaning and containment to the terror. I'll, I'll talk a little more about imagery down below the, the, the subsequent comments, but it is very important that we have the, the context, someone, you know, and especially if we're working with a, a, a healer who can hold a container for us. Um, that is often very important. The next quote, many of us can pinpoint exactly when our child went into hiding and the driven times in our lives when we have left the waif to die. That soul child, that is the soul child that yearns to connect with us in dreams. And so I don't know if you can just feel that in your body. Most of us can pinpoint exactly when our child went into hiding, you know? If you can actually feel that and give tremendous compassion to that child, you know, that child who went into hiding. The next quote, like a river, the individuation process follows a natural flow, which Jung perceived as a natural gradient toward wholeness. So Jung talked a lot about the individuation process. And really, every part of us is pointing toward wholeness. You know, our, our highest ideals, the things that excite us, our neuroses, the thing, places where we're stuck. Like every part of us is in, in one way or another pointing toward our wholeness. Now, the next few quotes are about metaphor. And before I read them, I want to talk a little about what she means by metaphor. In ancient societies, myth would provide all the metaphors. In traditional religious societies, the, the traditional religions would provide all the metaphors. So, so what is a metaphor in, in America in 2023? Well, think about it this way. One way a metaphor can appear when something is stuck in your head. It might be a song, it might be a scene or a line from a movie. It might be an image or a work of art. 
you know, something is kind of haunting us and stuck in our head. So that's one way a metaphor can arrive. Another way a metaphor can arrive is when something completely pauses us and, and fills us with a kind of awe or a sense of timelessness. So sometimes a beautiful natural scene can do that. Again, sometimes a work of art or, or a particular scene in a movie or even a, a way human interaction plays out might just cause us to pause and, and, and be overcome with awe for a second. That's another way that we can experience a metaphor. So what do we do with these metaphors? Metaphor is the language of the virgin. Virgin, as we're using the word, is an image of the soul, the eternal part of us that takes up residence in the body for a few years and connects to the world through the orifices of the body. Soul is a very different reality than the body. It is eternal. It hears with eternal ears, sees with eternal eyes, smells with an eternal nose. Its presence resonates with that of other dimensions. It has no language but the language of the transitory body. Therefore, it speaks in imagery. The only way it can communicate eternal truths to the beings who both are eternal and temporal. It can, of course, speak through music, paint, clay, marble, arches and domes, arabesques and leaps, and gardens and other creative forms. Right now, we're attempting to understand the power of metaphorical language, a language that our culture dismisses at its peril. So one way to say it is when something is stuck in our head, it's because our soul has grabbed onto it and our soul sees something of valuable something of value in that that is trying to communicate to us, you know. The next quote. Metaphor brings healing because it brings wholeness. Metaphor captures the passion, the movement, the meaning. In one image, it brings together a total response, emotional, imaginative, intellectual. If we focus the fire of our imagination, our own metaphors begin to heat up and transform, opening up new energy channels in our body. In taking this imaginative leap, we embody the metaphor. In becoming the metaphor, we become whole. This wholeness may not last, but that moment rings like a tuning fork that the cells do not forget. And so really, when we're confronted with any one of those metaphors, what does it mean? You know, what, what's the juice there? Really, really feel into what part of me is coming alive in response to that metaphor. And how can I embody that that metaphor? How can I embody that coming to life in a deeper way? And and it's kind of, it's an exercise of, you know, getting, as it were, a taste of our own wholeness. It's not like we, we get to Buddha nature all, all at once there, but we get a taste of our wholeness, and that's an important touchstone for us. The next quote says, metaphors act as guides. If you trust in your own dream process, or I would even say trust in your own growth process, you know the moment when you no longer have a model, no questions, no answers. You have nothing to help you but the images of your dreams. If you want to live your life, your images and your body are your individual guides. Together, they strengthen your inner core. 
Think of the image of an athlete before they jump, musician before they play, actors and dancers before they step on the stage. The great ones take a moment to see themselves present in what they do. They concentrate, still at the center. Then and only then do they move into the image. Imagination moves ahead of the action. So again, creating that silent place within where we can hold the metaphor and really see ourselves stepping into that image in an imaginative way and then trying to act act out of that, you know. And again, it's not like, you know, on the first time we're going to get to the goal, but but with each exercise like that, we're practicing living out our wholeness a little bit more. The next one is powerful. Whether we know it or not, we experience at a cellular level the love or lack of love that is directed toward us. Unconsciously, children are very sensitive to the subtle body connection. A gorgeous doll will be laid inside in favor of an old pan if the doll is not given in love. The subtle body picks up the unconscious intention of the person with whom it is communicating. A-causal and non-rational factors in a field of relatedness are at work. This makes us aware of a wider possibility for prayer and healing through the subtle body. In these areas, we are reconnecting at a new level with native cultures. So a lot there, but just that first sentence, whether we know it or not, we experience at a cellular level the love or lack of love that is directed toward us. Like something in us really knows very deeply is love being directed toward us or is something else being directed toward us, you know? And how powerful it is to be in touch with that level, how powerful it is to to live from that level, you know? And then it talks about, you know, I mean, essentially that that gets into that gets into the territory that energy healers are working in the folks who are doing healing through the subtle body. She refers to that here. The next quote, the new paradigm envisions a balance of equals, body and mind, feminine, masculine, imminent and transcendent. Men and women who are working toward the new paradigm are finding an image of that balance of equals through the goddess who comes out of the unconscious to guide them. So again, a new paradigm involving this balance of of yin and yang, you might say. The next quote, a long quote. The most difficult transformation as we move into this new paradigm is the realization of an interiorized spirituality. Polytheism and monotheism as we have known them involve a projection out there onto mother, nature, or father, son, and their surrogates. The divine has relied and continues to rely on the evolution of consciousness for continuing revelation. That's an amazing sentence right there. The most important step in the evolution of our consciousness is the pulling back of the projections so that we can begin the process of looking for the divine from within. Christ specifically warned that the kingdom of heaven does not come with observation by looking here and there, for he said, The kingdom of heaven is within you. Mystics and saints and others who have achieved a high level of consciousness have sought and found that realm of interior spirituality. The great Spanish mystic, St. Teresa of Avila, wrote of the interior castle. 
far more than in the West, the religious and esoteric systems of the East have been concerned with attaining higher levels of consciousness. Today, we are collectively moving toward the higher plane as we are ushered into a new paradigm in the new millennium. We're being impelled to find our interior castle. The dislocations of the outer sphere of public policies, attitudes, and behavior are making, us imp- making it imperative for us to turn inward and locate ourselves on the ground of our being. Within the center of every living thing dwells the soul of the world, the anima mundi. I'll just say a bit of synchronicity. I put together this quote sheet, and then once it was complete, I realized that yesterday actually was the feast of St. Teresa of Avila. I I had no idea. But it's fascinating. You might say a theme throughout this book is about withdrawing projections. What is it that I'm projecting out there rather than owning as my own? You know, projecting onto others, projecting onto groups, and even projecting onto the sacred. And also this idea that it's so important for us to be doing this inner work because the world is a mess. And the world needs people who, who are working to heal themselves within. The next quote. To rise to this new consciousness is to experience the unknowable and the opposites working together without ceasing to be opposites. Differing worldviews, once thought irreconcilable, are now in collision as they confront one another in the global village, bent, it seems, upon destroying each other. In the new paradigm, however, they are not seen to be in conflict, though seemingly opposed. They serve as counterparts to one another. The opposites are complementary, not contradictory. They are partners in the dance of life, partners in the ongoing interplay between the observer and the observed. The world of opposites is a world of relativity, a world in which the observer creates his or her own reality and engages with the reality created by others, a world in which all things are possible and all things coexist. Learning to live the paradigm of opposites is our present-day challenge, our modern mystery. And so again, a lot there that, you know, the the opposites, you know, people with the worldview stuck in the opposites, projecting the opposite, good versus evil, us versus them, that's driving all kinds of conflict and violence and everything else in the world. Healing comes from the people who can who can embody the opposites, who can who can go into this interior space where they realize that they contain the opposites. And again, doing this inner work is essential for healing the world. The next one, Jung realized that an encounter with reality requires the presence of the whole psyche, including feeling, thinking, instinct, and intuition. For him, pure reason was a pure abstraction from reality rather than an encounter with it. Not only is objectivity, as it has been traditionally found, not obtainable, but it gives us a false picture of reality by virtue of what it excludes. So again, just a a basic Jungian criticism of the head-centered world, um, which, which very much is, you know, there's many people in our current society who are stuck in their heads and trying to get more into their bodies. And the final quote, where energy has no link with a cherishing connection, it quickly bonds with evil. 
When energy is surrounded by a free flow of trust, it perceives light through the eyes of love. Where opposites are polarized instead of held in, ba- held in balance, trouble erupts. What manifests depends on the eyes that are perceiving. Intentionality determines the outcome of most of the situations in our life. So this is kind of an overall summary quote. And again, extre- you know, bird's eye view, these extreme opposites. You know, if I'm living a life where I have no self-love, I feel no connection to love, then it's, it's quite likely that the energies in my body are going to find their way to causing harm in the world. They're going to find their way to play out in evil, either in violence or in the person who is, you know, manipulative and passive aggressive and that kind of thing. The more I can open to love and trust, the more those energies are fed by love and become aligned with love. Um, And again, it, it's a, there's a long process there that is implicit in that quote, a long process of sinking more into love, dropping more into love, opening more of myself to self-love. Um, and I think it's important to, to recognize the places in us that are not healed, the places in, our, in us where we're not being honest with ourselves, they have the potential to cause harm. You know, that, that's one of the many things that, that, puts a kind of urgency on our own healing work, you know. And finally, that last line, intentionality determines the income, the outcome of most of the situations in our lives, our deep intention. I often say that the deepest thing that we, we communicate is not our words, but the core energetic signature of our body. And that is, that is transmitting a powerful signal to everyone we meet.